Welcome to Fine Rambles, number 92. Okay, so there's a mistake I make all the time. And I think it's a dangerous mistake. It, <laughs> it gets me into trouble. But I'm still struggling to understand the mistake. So I need to think out loud. Where I start is this idea that it's easier to corrupt a process than it is the result of that process. Easier to corrupt a process than its result. What the heck does that mean? Well, (laughs) I'm not sure. Here's a story. When I was a senior in college interviewing for jobs in investment banking, I was a pretty good candidate. I was good at math. I was ready to work really hard. And frankly, I was a good follower. You know, I was a good soldier. But I was totally clueless about how to present myself. I didn't know how I was supposed to look or what I was supposed to say. And so I flamed out of every interview. Interview after interview just went badly. <laughs> like the, the interviews went so badly, they were cut short, and I was basically kicked out of the room. And I got very frustrated. I would try to follow up with the interviewer and ask for feedback, but I never got any. And finally, one interviewer who had rejected me, he picked up the phone and he gave me this piece of advice. He said, Matt, you weren't wearing a watch. And for some reason, with that insane answer, the scales fell from my eyes. In a 15-minute interview, I couldn't possibly demonstrate that I would be a good analyst. That would take a boss months to figure out. And so the interviewer was just as trapped in this, in this format as I was. But they still had to make a snap decision. And so that made them make their judgments based on based on shortcuts, based on heuristics. And so they did, I think, what most people do. They checked our credentials. You know, what school we had gone to, what our major was, what our GPA was. And then they checked to see if we looked and sounded like a banker. You know, to be fair, a lot of banking, at least as you move up through the ranks, is based on how you look. It's based on how you present. It's based on if you say the right things, if you make the client comfortable. You know, if you match, <laughs> if you match the little picture of a banker that the client has in their head. So the smart college seniors hacked the process. They talked to their older friends who were bankers, and they learned how to dress. They learned, I don't know, they learned what tie to wear. And they learned that they should wear a nice watch. They learned what to say. They learned the lingo of the industry. Okay, lingo. All right. 
<laughs> Here's another story. Here's another story. It's five years later. The shoe is on the other foot. I'm now in private equity, and I'm the interviewer. I'm the guy the investment banking analysts have to get past. And I'm interviewing hundreds of people, hundreds. And at the start of every interview, I'm so impressed by all of them. They all have these insane resumes. I mean, the best schools, perfect GPAs, all sorts of extracurriculars and experience. Frankly, I'm intimidated by the people I'm interviewing. And then when I talk to them, I'm even more impressed. They, they look super competent, impeccable tailoring. They sound impressive. They're, they're confident and they're quick and they're eager. They know exactly what to say. They know the lingo of the private equity industry and I fall for it. <laughs> I find myself falling into the same trap as the people who interviewed me back in college. I, I start to confuse the ability to nail a 15-minute interview with competence. I start to confuse the ability to make a good impression with the ability to do the job. Now, luckily, after getting past me, the candidates had to build a financial model with projections and a leveraged buyout analysis, and they had to do this from scratch, just a blank Excel file, and they had to do it pretty quickly. And there, all the glib phrases and the impressive credentials in the world were worthless. And all these amazing resumes, these people who presented so well, they just fell apart. The process, the interview, had been corrupted. They'd learned the tricks. They'd learned what to tell me, the lingo, the language, but they couldn't fake the modeling. So we were lucky. We had a real test that could sort the wheat from the chaff. And unfortunately, that's pretty rare because the world is complex. And, and most of the time, it's insanely difficult to tell the people who are actually competent from the people who have just figured out how to look and how to sound and, you know, how to act competent for just long enough. So after I had these experiences, I started to see this problem in a lot of places. Take, uh, take the art world. The art world has always been susceptible to forgeries. So the art world put into place a process to combat forgeries. And basically, again, I'm not well-versed in this, but basically the process records the movement of an artwork. In, in meticulous detail. And therefore, there's a paper trail that can be examined to ensure that a work of art is authentic. It's a chain of custody. And in the art world, this is called provenance. What is the provenance of a work? Now, 
it's very difficult to create a new Renoir or a new Picasso because they're dead. <laughs> but some con men figured out that it was relatively easy to fake the chain of custody for a forgery. They faked the provenance. They faked the paper trail. And the art world fell for it en masse. And there are still famous museums that refuse to have their paintings tested because they're so afraid that their great works are forgeries. Here's another example. Take healthcare. It is impossible as a patient to figure out during a, a short visit to a doctor's office or during a high-pressure, stressful trip to the emergency room if the doctor is competent. <laughs> we don't know enough. We can't, I don't know, we can't statistically analyze the doctor's last 500 patients. And so we shortcut the process. We use heuristics. Does this person look like a doctor? Do they sound like a doctor? How's the bedside manner? And again, those things are easier to do than to become a competent doctor. And so we get fooled. Or at least I get fooled. And I get fooled because it's easier to look competent than to be competent. You know, I guess here's some cynical advice. If you want to get ahead, find the person who looks and sounds the part. Find the fashionable person who's on the cutting edge of how people in your profession dress and how they talk and the language they use, the opinions they have. And if you want to become competent, well, then find the person who doesn't look the part, who people kind of sneer at and sniff at, but still seem to somehow respect and then sit at their feet. And, you know, it's funny, in banking, we boiled this entire prescription down to four words. Dress British, think Yiddish. So this mistake that I'm sort of talking around, I still make this mistake all the time. Still, I still make it. I still forget how easy it is to corrupt a process, how easy it is to hack the shortcuts that I use that we all have to use in order to make decisions in a world that is irreducibly complex. I still confuse appearance with reality. I still confuse confidence with competence. I still mistake credentials for competence. You know, uh, what's his name? Dan Gilbert. He showed how belief is instinctual. It's skepticism that takes conscious effort. It's not judging the book by its cover that takes deliberate willpower. So again, I come back to this. I'm the problem. The problem is me, my desire for a shortcut, my knee-jerk belief, my rush to judgment, and my rush to certainty. So I, I have to remind myself again and again, Matt, where are you certain? That's probably where your greatest mistakes are lurking. Where are you contemptuous? 
That's probably where the lessons I have to learn live. The lords of karma don't take prisoners. They punish presumption out of, out of all proportion. They have, <laughs> they have a zero tolerance policy for arrogance and for carelessness. So I ask myself, Matt, who do you trust? Because that's who has the power to destroy me. You know, we trusted our parents. And our parents told us to go to college and take on student debt to get useless degrees and then go into dead-end jobs. Because that happens to have worked for them in the 1960s. We trusted our doctors. And they gave us thalidomide and morselators and statins. They told us to eat carbohydrates. They told us to take opioids and benzos. We trusted our politicians. And they gave us the Gulf of Tonkin and weapons of mass destruction. We trusted our economists like, you know, Alan Greenspan and Ben Bernanke and Robert Rubin. And they drove us directly into the great financial crisis and they picked our pockets and they bailed out their friends at Goldman Sachs and AIG and Citigroup to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars. And at the same time, they were telling us they were solving the problem. And then when these groups get called out, when these people are shown the consequences of what they've done, when you, when you lay the people they killed at their feet, when you show them the lives they destroyed, the, the communities they ruined, they shrug and they say, you know, well, maybe, <laughs> maybe we could have done better. And I don't think that's good enough. And, you know, I do think it's great when we acknowledge a mistake. I think it's great when we're humble and we're flexible enough to change our minds. But that's not what these people are doing. They didn't just make a mistake. They made a mistake and then they were so arrogant that they told other people how to live their lives based on that mistake. They were so arrogant, they waived their credentials and they claimed the authority to tell other people how to live their lives. And then they attacked and destroyed anyone who dared to point out the mistake or even dared question them. And now, when the mistakes are obvious to everyone, those same groups, those same people, they wash their hands of the problems they created. Or worse, these same people demand even more power because they insist that they and only they are in the position to fix the problem they created. And how did they get this power? Well, we gave it to them because they had the right credentials and they had the right look and they said the right things. And so we believed them. We trusted them. And we are waking up to the fact that that was a mistake. Okay, that's all I got. I'll catch you next week.